You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. 21. If you haven't already got a pew Bible and you'd like to grab one, let me encourage you to pick one up from either side so that you can follow along. Matthew chapter 6, verse 16 to 21, on page 860. And before I read, let me just say a prayer for the word today. Thank you, Father, for making yourself known to us and showing the way of salvation through faith in your Son. We ask you now to teach and encourage us through your word so that we may be ready to love and serve you for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. When you fast, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites, for they make their faces unattractive so that their fasting is obvious to people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting isn't obvious to others, but to your Father who is in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the word of the Lord. All right, leave that text open, and uh, in addition to seeing Jesus' words, we're going to do a little tour of the Bible to discover more about fasting, so have those Bibles handy. Hey, isn't it typical that just the week when we come to talk about fasting, all the men in the church don't show up? Isn't that typical? Am I right, ladies? Typical. (laughs) Oh, I just realized the sermon recording won't have the context for that comment, so... Everybody, the men are away at men's camp, all right? That's why they're not here. It's not just because we're talking about fasting. Although it might be, I don't know. Fasting. It's the third of the three sort of pillars of piety that Jesus speaks to. These are the three practices, religious practices that were common to Jews in the first century that Christians from the first century have carried on and those three practices are almsgiving, you remember that's giving to the poor, giving to those who are in need, prayer, which we've spoken about the last two Sundays and now today, fasting and, and in that sense fasting isn't unique to Christian practice, in fact it's, you can find it in just about every ancient culture and religion. Um, obviously, you know that Muslims fast in their own way, and, um, and, and as I say, most ancient cultures, whether for religious reasons or otherwise, have, practices, have practiced some form of fasting. Uh, we are, in that sense, peculiar in human history, the fact that most of us in the room today don't have great experience of fasting. Some of you, who perhaps come from non-Western cultures, might have more experience of this. Some of you might have been brought up in Christian traditions where you have a kind of rhythm of fasting that's part of 
normal everyday discipleship and you don't know why it would be that anyone wouldn't fast in the first place. Um, Others of us practice like a regular form of fasting that's just called sleep. Like that's our experience of fasting. Um, We're eating all the rest of the time and then we sleep. And so breakfast is is kind of literal, I guess it, I mean, I guess we're breaking the fast, but it's happening like seconds after we've woken up in the morning. And so, um, broad range of experiences of fasting in this room, I take it, and for those who are listening online, broad experience of fasting, and probably a broad sort of understanding about what fasting is and what it achieves. And I think probably all of this adds to the conclusion, uh, con- the the confusion around this topic of fasting. It's confusing. And um, not just because it's practiced in different ways by different cultures and different religions, but because uh, even we in the Christian church have this broad understanding and, and varying understanding of what fasting is and what its purpose is. And, and, and all of this means probably that most of us just don't have much experience of it. Because we don't understand it, we haven't been encouraged to practice it, and therefore it just becomes this kind of obscure thing that certain Christians have done at certain times. And actually the great reformer, John Calvin, picked up on this when he uh, spoke about fasting. He said, let us say something about fasting, this is the 16th century, because many, for want of knowing its usefulness, undervalue its necessity, and some reject it as almost superfluous. That is, it's kind of pointless. I would say some, maybe in the 16th century it was some, now we could probably just say most. Most of us reject it as almost superfluous. That is, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of an appendix to the Christian experience of discipleship. I would say probably, almost certainly, everyone in this room has practiced almsgiving at some point, that's giving to those in need. All of us, certainly, if we're Christians, have practiced prayer, but when it comes to the, th- to the third leg of the stool, uh, most, of us, most of us fall off. We don't have that leg in place, and so these kind of words of Jesus don't tend to connect with us. So my purpose this morning is to give us three purposes for fasting and commend it to you as something that should constitute a regular practice for you if you're a disciple of Jesus. Now, I have heard people push back on this and say, well, the Bible never commands us to fast, so why should I? And this is true. The Bible doesn't command you to fast. I would also say the Bible never commands you to eat three square meals and snacks in between, but we're all pretty committed to doing that. The Bible doesn't command you to breathe, all right? It just assumes you will. This is the same is, is true here. Jesus just expects you to fast. He doesn't go on and on about it. He doesn't grave it, engrave it in stone because he just expects that his followers will. And this has been the same throughout when it's come to, to giving, when it comes to praying and to fasting. He assumes, even his language in the sermon assumes that we will. Like in verse uh, 16 of our passage, he begins, whenever you fast. So it's not, it's not if, it's when. It's not if. It's when. Dietrich Bonhoeffer spoke to this, and I'm going to bring out all the big reformed guys because it's the reformed guys that tend not to practice fasting, right? So we've got Calvin, here's Bonhoeffer. He says, Jesus takes it for granted 
Uh, we've got Spurgeon coming up as well, all right? So I'm just, I'm gonna, I've got the Holy Trinity to, 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 to smash us down, all right? So Jesus takes it for granted, says Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that his disciples will observe the pious custom of fasting. We use the word pious now in a derogatory sense, like he's so pious, he's so holy, he's so, you know, judgmental. That's not what he means. Pious means devoted. Jesus takes for granted that his disciples will observe the pious custom of fasting. Strict exercise of self-control is an essential feature of the Christian's life. Such customs have only one purpose, to make the disciples more ready and cheerful to accomplish those things which God would have done. Says the man who endured the wrath of the Nazis for the sake of his Christian faith, he knows what he's talking about. That book is called The Cost of Discipleship. You should read it. So Jesus assumes we will fast whenever you fast, he says. Why then, if this is, seems obvious to our forefathers, even the, 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 the Bible reformed guys, if it's obvious to them, if it seems like Jesus expected, why do we find ourselves in this position today where we're not, why, where we're not practicing it? This is a good question. Some have suggested it's because we're just too well-fed. We're just too well-appointed. We're just, we've got, we've got, we don't have Uber Eats, we have menu log and DoorDash and Deliveroo and all that, whatever. Like, maybe it's because we're just too well-fed. Um, that could be true. It might be that we haven't been well taught. Maybe it's my fault. Maybe I, maybe I, maybe your leaders haven't taught you enough about this expectation on Christians to be fasting. Maybe it's that as well. I think maybe it's got something to do with something that's quite far, like deep-rooted in our experience as Western Christians. So again, this is quite a Western Christian phenomenon. In other parts of the world, people will be fasting as a matter of course. Maybe you come from those parts of the world. For us, I wonder if it's actually anchored in one of the core misunderstandings that we have kind of baked into our version of Christianity. For us, for many of us, and this is a huge problem that we can't get into now, but for a huge problem for a lot of us in the West is that we have a Christianity that has been, uh, that has grown up out of a a platonic understanding of the world. So this goes back to Plato, it goes back to Greek philosophy, and we have baked into our understanding of Christianity something that isn't there anywhere in the Bible, and that is this. There is a kind of dualism in the universe between flesh and spirit. There is a dualism there between um, body and soul. And, and flesh down here is kind of unimportant, it kind of can be thrown away, it's kind of sinful and dirty, but soul and spirit, they're really, they're really ethereal and pure and that's good. And so this understanding works itself out in terms of, you know, I don't need to keep fit and healthy, I don't need to take care of the body that God has given me because I'm just going to die anyway and I'll be whisked up to heaven to live on a cloud and eat cream cheese or something. Or same with the world. We don't need to care for the world and the environment. It's all going to burn anyway. There'll be a, a better one in the future. Um, or, you know, being really invested in, um, I don't know, any activity in this world, entertaining people, having people around for dinner, enjoying food, um, cultivating a garden, playing sports, all of those things are subservient and less holy than 
praying and fasting and singing songs to Jesus. Now, all of this is based on a false notion of the universe. It's platonic. It's non-Christian. The Bible teaches us an integrated version of the universe. God loves flesh. God created flesh and said, that's good. That's good right there. God cares about our bodies. He cares about this earth, this universe. Created stuff matters to him and it's sanctified by him. It's designed to bring glory to him. Now, how is this a problem? Again, I said we didn't couldn't go into it and then I did. All right, here's, here's where the problem plays out. I, in this understanding, can almost entirely live out my Christian experience in abstraction, in my mind. I don't need to live it out with my body because it's just, it's all, it's all soul. I'm just connecting with God in the kind of invisible, ethereal space between my mind and his mind. And so you end up not having to do anything. Why should I be on my knees when I pray? Like, praying is just about me connecting my heart to God's heart or my mind to God's mind. That's not true. It makes a difference if you get on your knees or maybe even on your face, right? It makes a difference because you are a person, you are a creature, you have a body, You are an embodied creature. And so what you do with your body matters. You say, well, I don't don't raise my hands when I sing to God because it's just the, the words are the thing that matter. I would never dance before the Lord like David did because it's just the words that matter. Or I'm dancing in my heart. It's such a white person then to say, I'm just going, you know, I'm dancing on the inside. It's nonsense. You are a creature. It matters what you do with your body. What you do with your body affects things. It affects how you interact with God. It affects how you worship God. I'm not saying everyone has to raise their hands and dance and clap or do any of that. I'm not saying, you know, you don't want to contrive these things, but also we shouldn't inhibit ourselves thinking, well, the body doesn't matter. It does. We are embodied creatures. God designed us that way. Therefore, something like fasting matters because it is an embodied activity. When you fast, you feel it. Your tummy groans. Right? It's a way of engaging with God in a whole body way. We've seen throughout this series that Jesus says righteousness is a whole body, heart deep activity. Practicing righteousness involves everything that I am and has its locus in my heart. Head, heart and hands are all integrated things and all need to be active in our acts of worship. So there's a little diagnosis of a, a few reasons why maybe... We're, we're, we're falling behind on this thing, this ne- necessary practice of fasting. All right, here's my three things, my, my, my three points, my three purposes for fasting. Number one, whole body mourning. These three things are all whole body activities. 
Again, not, you're not just going to do that. I'm just going to do this in my mind. No, fasting brings it into the whole body. So, whole body mourning. First purpose of fasting. We talk in our culture about emotional eating. I, I must have made my, my 24th trip to the fridge the other night while Renee and I were watching TV and she was like, do you think you might be an emotional eater? Because I'd just been like sharing with her that I was anxious about something that was going on for me. And, um, and I was like, you are? No, I was like, well, yeah, just like everyone, right? We medicate ourselves with food. That's how we speak of, <laughs> that's how we speak of emotional eating. But really, eating itself is express, expressive of emotion. Like ancient peoples understood this. What you do with food has kind of emotional consequences. And, and there is an appropriate emotion to experience while eating, and it has its corollary in an in a, in a appropriate uh, emotional experience in not eating. So, so just to make it really simple, at weddings we feast and at funerals we fast. Or we should. That's how it's worked traditionally. Wedding, feast, joy, thanksgiving, praise, celebration. Funeral, mourning, sadness, grief, right? Feasting and fasting have their place and they have an emotional kind of expression, a whole body experience. What we've done is just make the feast fit into every, like we've jammed the feast into every experience of emotion. So our funerals are like stay back and have some food and then go to the pub and get smashed. That's our, that's our version of mourning. And it does exactly the opposite thing to what, to, to what original funerals were designed to do. Feast, you, fasting heightens the experience of mourning. I'm not only sad, I'm hungry heightens the experience of mourning. What we've done is turn it into a feast and a binge, and that does the exact opposite. It numbs the experience of mourning. I don't want to feel grief. I want to suppress all of my negative emotions, so let's just get drunk. Let's just eat more food. We're idiots. We are. This is why God keeps calling us back to a better way, all right? This is what we do by nature. We want, to, we want to numb pain. We want to avoid negative emotions. Fasting, as a whole body expression of mourning, heightens our sense of mourning. It heightens our experience and expression of mourning. So Jesus says, when he, he speaks to this later in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 9, John, uh, John the Baptist, his disciples come to Jesus and they say, uh... Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? You don't fast at a wedding. Jesus is the bridegroom. The church is the bride. The time will come when the groom will be taken away. He'll be killed. He'll be crucified. The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. My disciples will fast, but not while I'm here. We're partying. You fast in grief, and it heightens your sense 
of mourning, of loss. I've just lost my Rabbi Jesus. I've lost my food as well. Remember the Beatitudes. Earlier in this sermon, Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. And we said that that's, for his disciples, has a few different expressions, but maybe central to it is mourning over my sin, mourning over my failure to live as my saviour. So here's, here's a good way for you to practice fasting. When you come across your sins, I mean you're like your besetting sins. You know what I mean by beset? Like everyone's sinning all the time, but some of us have, all of us have some besetting sins, these sins that we keep falling into, these habitual sins that keep us, keep us from living the way that God wants us to live. You know them. Don't think about your wife's, right? Just train your mind back on your own, your own heart, those besetting sins that you keep falling down on. Here's how you can fast. Fast and mourn over those sins. Come before God and say, I hate my sin, I want to kill my sin, and I am going to go without food as an expression of mourning over my sin. That's how grievous it is to me. I do not take your forgiveness for granted. As my stomach groans, it echoes with my own sense of groaning in my soul that I want to be set free from these sins that keep taking me down, numbing me to your presence, preventing me from fulfilling your calling. That's how you could fast this week. The prophet Joel, he spoke about this in in chapter 2, using fasting in this way. He says, even now, this is the Lord's declaration. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Fasting, weeping, and mourning. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love. He relents from sending disaster, so you've got all of this sin that's keeping you from him, but he is good, he is faithful, he is slow to anger, he's compassionate, he wants to run down the road to meet you. Now, join those two things together through fasting, weeping, and mourning over your sin. Turn back. Relent, repent, come back. Some, some people and some church traditions have done this in a yearly um, rhythm. Lent is a time of fasting, particularly over sin, coming to terms with the, the ash of your sin. But I think we'd probably be missing the point if we just made it like an annual thing like Easter, right? This needs to be a regular thing. There's my first one, all right? Mourning, whole body mourning. Number two, whole body pleading. Whole body pleading. Again, an emotion, like a, a, a practice, a whole body practice, foregoing food to heighten my experience of desperation. Fasting makes sense in times of crisis. 
where you are facing a crisis that you cannot fix. You've probably tried for a long time, because that's how we're wired, right? I'll try and fix this on my own for years, and then maybe I'll turn to God, or at least for weeks. We find these times of crisis, find ourselves in these times of crisis, we come finally to the conclusion, I can't fix this. There's a global pandemic. People keep getting sick and half our church is empty every week. We've come up with some solutions, I guess. We can't fix it. So why aren't we fasting by now? Seems like it would be a good idea. Fasting connects us with our sense of helplessness. I can't just fix all of my problems by going across to Macca's, making it a large meal, thanks. I can't fix all of my problems that way. I can't fix all of my problems through self-medication. I can't fix all of my problems through any means, least of all the government, right? So what are we left with? Emptiness. Now, I am going to make my stomach empty as an expression of my utter helplessness. And through my groaning, I'm going to come before God in whole body pleading and say, please fix this. I've got nothing. Maybe the pandemic thing's not connecting with you. Maybe, maybe though, maybe your marriage is on its last legs. Maybe your kids aren't speaking to you anymore. And you find yourself in a situation that's helpless. Your child's been diagnosed with leukemia. Just been laid off from work. I don't know. You find yourself in crisis. And now's the time to start fasting, my friends. Self-emptying. To reflect the reality that I can't fix this. I like this quote from Joseph Wimmer. Maybe it's Wimmer. He says, The weakness of hunger, which leads to death, all right, if you fast forever, you die. So, that weakness, I haven't had sugar for 15 minutes, right? That the weakness of hunger, which eventually leads to death, brings forth the goodness and power of God who wills life. Now, listen to this really carefully. Here there is no extortion, no magic attempt to force God's will. This is not manipulation. We merely look with confidence upon our Heavenly Father and through our fasting say gently in our hearts, Father, without you I will die. Come to my assistance. Make haste to help me. For us to truly believe that without God we will die... Some of us need to fast for a while because otherwise we just feel like utterly self-sufficient creatures, which is a lie. Make haste to help me. The most famous example of this is the one we saw in that little video, kids video, the example of Esther calling a fast when all of the Jews are about to be exterminated. Those guys just keep getting exterminated through history. It's terrible. Um, This was one of those 
situations. It was going to be a, an ancient holocaust. And her response at Mordecai's insistence was to call a fast. Here's how it went. Mordecai is a little bit more rough around the edges than the kids' video version, right? Mordecai told the messenger to reply to Esther, go to Esther and say, don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you are in the king's palace. Right? He really is desperate for her to do something. Fair enough, everyone's about to be slaughtered, okay? So he's a bit edgy. He says, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place. He's confident that God's going to save them. But you and your family's father's family will be destroyed. Who knows, perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. After that, I will go to the king, even if it's against the law. If I perish, I perish. Desperate times. Times of crisis. Times that only God's intervention will solve. That's when we empty ourselves and through the hunger, plead, whole body pleading for God to do something, to intervene. You might re- not realise this, but it was real, relatively recently that we stopped doing this as whole nations. Whole nations would call days of fasting, these are Christian nations, days of fasting for deliverance. There's a drought across two-thirds of Australia. We're going to call a national day of fasting. Everyone's going to get involved because we're helpless We don't make rain. There's a situation in the 18th century where the French are looking again, it's like every weekend, looking again to invade England, whole British Isles, right? They're They're just across the water there and they're massing. And so in John Wesley's diary in 1756, he makes this entry. He says, the fast day, the national day of fasting, the whole of... The kingdom is called to a day of fasting. He says the fast day was a glorious day such as London has scarce seen since the restoration, the restoration of the monarchy. Every church in the city was more than full and a solemn seriousness sat on every face. Surely God heareth prayer and there will yet be a lengthening of our tranquility. That is, maybe the French won't invade after all. And later in his diary, Humility was turned into national rejoicing for the threatened invasion by the French was averted. It didn't happen. And so they went from fasting to feasting. And that's how it's meant to go. You can imagine if the whole of Australia is plunged into a 10-year drought and we called a national day of fasting and then the heavens opened up, it would be the same way, right? It would be, we would go from, we have no power over this. So we're going to fast and pray for God's intervention. And then when the rains come, national rejoicing 
would naturally flow from it. This is all about worship. So what's your crisis, my friends? You've got to have at least one. Maybe you just need to keep this in your back pocket for a while, and when that day comes, and it will, then God help us, let's turn to him with hunger pangs, with whole body pleading. Mourning, pleading, last one, seeking. Whole body seeking, and specifically seeking God's blessing on some endeavor that we're going to be involved in. This is not just in desperate, negative, and mournful times that we engage in fasting. Sometimes it's just because we are doing something, Lord. We are launching this new ministry. We are planning this new church. We are, I don't know, starting this new family. Whatever it is, we are doing something, and we want your blessing, and so we're going to fast and ask through our fasting prayer for you to bless us. Again, this is an echo of, we can't make this work. We want to plant this church. We've put the core team together. We've found a place to meet. We've got a little bit of funding. But truth is, none of it's going to do anything. None of it's going to achieve any eternal good apart from your spirit moving. So therefore, out of that sense of emptiness, sense of dependence, we're going to ask for your blessing. You can't read the book of Acts without seeing this happening all the time. If you doubt whether we should be fasting, then if you have any, make any connection between our church and the first church, you better uh, reform your views because all through the book of Acts, this, they got this. We're on a new thing. We're on a global thing. We're on a change the world thing. So we better be fasting. Acts 13 uh, as they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, it's just like it's just implied. Of course they were. It's not like this isn't this isn't anything crazy. It doesn't require any further explanation. As they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, "Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them." That work, by the way, has changed the world more than any other single work in the history of humankind. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after they had fasted and prayed, bookends. Worshipping and fasting, fasting and praying, laid hands on them and sent them off. Acts 14, same thing, similar thing. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, church planning endeavor, and prayed with fasting, obvs, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This is just a normal pattern. Christian ministry. If you're involved in this church ministry, we better get fasting, my friends. Fasting for blessing. Again, not manipulating God, not saying, well, we have gone without lunch today, so you better start showing up. It's not about that. It's not about twisting God's arm or earning some kind of favor with Him. It's simply a means that God has set up for us to experience deeper connection with Him, fuller expression of dependence on Him. The great, the great man, Charles Spurgeon, he talks with just fondness 
of the fasting that they did at the Metropolitan Tabernacle there in London, biggest church in the world at the time. He's a man that's gifted beyond the kin of mortal men. He could have just done it all on his own. No, he couldn't. He knew he couldn't. Even with his level of giftedness in the stratosphere, he couldn't do it. And so he says, our seasons of fasting and prayer at the tabernacle have been high days indeed. Never has heaven's gate stood wider. Never have our hearts been nearer the central glory. That's what I want. Whole body mourning, pleading, seeking. This is what fasting is about. Now, we come to Jesus in this passage of the Sermon on the Mount. And the reason I'm not going to go through this in great detail, apart from the fact that I'm out of time, is just that his pattern for teaching on this is exactly the same as his pattern on almsgiving and prayer. Okay, so let me just simply read it and you'll get it. He says, verse 16 to 18, whenever you fast, hmm, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites, for they make their faces unattractive so that their fasting is obvious to people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you fast, but when you fast, but when, when you fast, Put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting isn't obvious to others but to your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So the same, exact same pattern, right? Jesus is saying your motivation counts for everything. If you're motivated for people to see you and think that you are just a tip-top Christian, then that's your reward. Great. Or... Not and, but or, you can be motivated by the reward of your Father in heaven, eternal rather than temporal, and where that's your motivation, God who sees what's done in secret, even the fasting that no one else can see, or maybe they can occasionally hear from your gut. That kind of secret devotion, piety, will be rewarded eternally. So Jesus says, be motivated by the eternal and not by the temporal. Store up for yourselves, he says, verse 19, treasures in heaven rather than on earth. You've got a storehouse and you've got this capacity in your life to fill it with treasure. You can fill it with the treasures of everyone thinking that you are amazing. Not only does he give to the poor, but he prays and he fasts. Or you can fill that storehouse with treasure in heaven. And that happens when we're motivated by our heart level connection with God himself and a desire to follow Jesus as his disciples rather than Temporary praise of men, whatever that's worth. So the question is, when, when it comes to storing up treasures, 
He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys. So, so they're eternal. No one can take them from you. Thieves don't break in there and steal. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, Jesus says. The question as you, you need to ask yourself as you're giving to the poor, as you're praying to the Lord, as you are fasting from food, The question you need to ask yourself is, is my heart in the right place? That's a tricky question to answer. A good way to figure it out is, you know, is my heart in the right place in doing these things? You just need to check your rewards program, right? Which rewards program are you running? In doing these things, are you looking and seeking the rewards that come from earthly recognition or are you rather seeking eternal rewards from your Father in heaven? That's how you know. That's how you know. Check your rewards program. Jesus encourages us to give to the poor. He expects us to pray to our Father. He paves the way for us to walk in regular fasting as a whole body expression of mourning, pleading, and seeking God's face, God's favor, God's intervention. He has set the course for us. The question that remains for us to answer, for you to answer, is am I going to follow him in this? He's going to go on to say, next week, is it? Yes, next week, you can't serve two masters. You need to choose today who is your Lord. Is it Jesus or is it your appetites? Well, if you're still alive in the room right now, you are challenged you're challenged by this vision for christian living maybe it has opened up a whole another world of piety that you hadn't yet considered hadn't yet been introduced to i don't want to just say these things and then leave you to your own devices that's not how discipleship works it always functions in the context of community so that can start now. You can come as we stand and sing God's praises together. You can come over to the corner here and pray with someone, ask for insight from God, help from God in order to keep following Him in day to day, in the day to day. But you're going to need more than that even. You're probably going to need to join a small group or get into a, a, a group of other believers here who can encourage you and continue to convict you when it comes to these practices of Christian piety. With that in mind, let me just pray for God's blessing on us. Encourage you to come and pray, um, to give uh, financially to the work of the gospel here during the next few songs and to meet with God and ask for his blessing on you as you seek to follow Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word. I'm, I'm struck by this reality. We have Jesus' words written down for us. We don't have to guess about what he might want from us this morning. We have his words loud and clear, 
printed on pages, in books, on our phones, and by your grace, even on our hearts. So please, Lord, help us to walk according to your ways. Help us to live in step with the Spirit. Help us to follow in the footsteps of our Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Please stand.